Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've seen in this book that Paul is addressing the church there in Corinth, and they had a lot of problems, but most of their problems centered around the fact that they couldn't get along. Some things don't change because that's probably the biggest problems that most of us have in our lives. But there in Corinth, they were fighting over everything. They were fighting in the name of Christianity. They were fighting over theology. They were dividing over, you know, my pastor can beat up your pastor kind of silliness. And so he's been going through over these last three chapters and continues even in the next chapter talking about this and about why it's so important and what are the keys to us getting along as members of the church, as God's people. And so we saw over the last few weeks as he talked about the fact that everyone within the church has different roles, things that they're called to do, and how important it is that we just find out what we're supposed to do and do that and don't worry about what other people are doing. Now as we begin with verse 18... He starts out with this statement, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. A lot in here that makes you scratch your head. What is this business of, if you seem like you're wise, you need to get foolish so that you can be wise? (laughs) And especially, what is this stuff about, hey, Everything is yours. How do I sign up for that? But he starts out by saying, let no one deceive himself. And that is sort of the key to all of this. He's saying, you're fooling yourselves. You're deceiving yourselves. There are things that, of which you are convinced that really just aren't so. And that's the source of the problem. That's the root of what's happening in your life. You're fooling yourself. Now, it's kind of sad when you're fooled by someone else. They, you know, put a pitch on you and you believe what they say and they're really just conning you. That's a bad feeling to be fooled by someone else. It's also sad when you fool someone else. You can't be yourself. You act like you're someone else and everyone believes you're something that you aren't. And that, too, is a real empty sort of feeling. But the greatest tragedy of all is certainly when you fool yourself. See, if if I'm fooled by you, I can eventually wise up. Sooner or later, you'll show your colors and I'll realize I've been conned. If I'm fooling you, eventually I can be convicted and, you know, I realize what I'm doing and I can stop doing it. But if I'm fooling myself, that's the future is dark indeed because when you're fooling yourself... How are you ever going to get better? How, how do you get delivered from self-deception? 
And that's what Paul is talking about in these verses, is how can we avoid that self-deception? I, you know, there are so many people who are absolutely convinced they're right when they are completely wrong, and it's sad to see. I, there's a TV show on, and I hadn't seen it before, and nor will I watch it again, but I watched it this last week, and it was a show, you know, there are no new shows, there are just remakes of other shows, and this one's just kind of a ripoff of American Idol, but in this show, it's all about American inventors, and they have these judges who are there, they have the obligatory, arrogant, obnoxious Brit, and, you know, then George Foreman is one of the, you know, he invented the George Foreman grill. Um, and a couple other people that I don't know what they invented. And, and people come with their life dream of the great inventions that they've made. And in a similar way to American Idol, you know, American Idol isn't entertaining because the people are so talented. What makes American Idol the number one hit show in the world is because you get to watch people who think they're talented and they really aren't. Towards the end, it's really not that much fun. But those early shows when those people who their friends fooled them into thinking that they sing really great and they go on TV and make fools of themselves, that's what makes that show so great. And this American Inventor show is similar. Every once in a while, there's an invention that looks halfway interesting, but you really enjoy seeing the ones where they're just such stupid ideas. And, the, and some of the people really understand that that's what it's about, and they're just on there messing around. One of the guys, his invention was a thing called instant abs, I think he called it. And it was a, a plastic thing, a sheet of plastic that had kind of a cutout of abdominal muscles really well-defined, a six-pack. And what you do with this thing is you stick it on your stomach and lay out in the sun, and it puts tan lines on your stomach in the shape of abdominal muscles. And so this guy showed his invention, then he picked up his shirt, and sure enough, he was just as cut as could be, and you just go, oh, come on, you know. So there are people like that that you can have fun with, but the reason that I'm not going to watch the show anymore is because of a couple of people in particular, one I'm thinking of, and, and the thing that just I couldn't stomach was that this guy really thought he had a great idea, and it wasn't such a great idea, it wasn't such a horrible idea, it was just kind of stupid, but the guy was so convinced that this is going to change the world, that this is just this great invention. Now, what the invention was, I'll tell you that first, it was a a little racetrack for drag racing matchbox cars. Now, that doesn't sound like anything too new or earth-shattering. And it was just it was like four feet off the ground, and you put the two matchbox cars next to each other, and the only thing unique about this one was that it made little engine rev-up noises as you're waiting to start. And instead of pushing a button for the cars to start, you had a little gas pedal on the floor that when you stepped on it, it released your car. And sure enough, they go down the track for about a second, and that's it. You see who wins. And you think, well, what's so tragic about that? Well, the tragedy was is they were interviewing this poor guy. He had put his life savings into it. He had even taken a second out on his house. And to make matters worse, two of his brothers 
had taken second mortgages out on their houses to invest in this. And somehow this guy had, up to this point, invested over $300,000 in these matchbox track. And, and all of a sudden, I'm laughing, and then I'm just going, wait a minute, this is somebody's real life that's being ruined and destroyed. Everything that this poor guy has worked for all his life, because he has a stupid idea that nobody will tell him, that's a dumb idea, don't do that. Everyone trying to be encouraging and uplifting and all those things that society tells us we ought to be. And this poor guy's wrecking his life with a bad idea. Now, when I see that, it reminds me of people I see all the time who are doing the same thing, just in different ways. Making decisions with their lives, investing things that are valuable and important to them into a bad idea, into things that aren't going to work, that aren't going to be productive. Instead, they're just going to take away. And so Paul addresses people with ideas that they think are good, but really they aren't good. And he says, don't do that. Don't fool yourself. Don't deceive yourself. Now, each of us is prone to self-deception, but just in different areas of our lives. We might not invest our life savings in a matchbox drag racing idea, but what are we investing our lives in? What do we spend our resources and our time on? And the truth is, often it can be something that's tragic. So as we continue reading here, he says, don't deceive yourself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. What? If you seem like you're wise, become a fool. And he goes on to say, the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And then he quotes Job, and where he says he catches the wise in his own craftiness. And then he quotes the Psalms, David, when he says, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. If you go over and read those passages, they're talking about learning from God, how God wants to teach you the things that you need to know, and often it'll tip on its, on its head the things that you think you already know. The reason why, he says, when it seems like you're wise, you need to become foolish, is because God's wisdom is so different than ours. We have certain ideas. We have certain preconceptions, and often our ideas are just different than God's. And, it, and we look at it as being, man, God does weird things. And often we look at what God does and we scratch our heads and go, what in the world is he doing? But see, the problem is he knows things we don't know, and he sees things in a different way than we see them. And he says, just because you think it's smart doesn't make it smart. Just because everyone else tells you you're smart doesn't mean you're smart. And so he says, really, if you want to get on track with what God has for your life, you need to realize you're not as smart as you think you are. You're not as smart as your mother tells you you are. You're not as smart as this world says you are. The truth is, what you need is God's wisdom, and that is going to, in so many ways, contradict conventional wisdom. See, the truth is, ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, people have been mostly wrong. That which is most popular is usually a bad idea. 
what most people would say, oh, great idea, really is bad. And that's why our lives get so upside down. The truth is, our lives, most of us, we look at our lives and go, something's got to be wrong here. There's something that isn't working the way that it ought to work. What's going on? And usually the first thing that we do, our first inclination, is to blame someone else for the way our life is. It's this person's fault. It's their fault. It's that fault. And so we go, something's wrong. It can't be me. It must be somebody else. And then after we kind of run out of those kinds of targets, then we go, it's God's fault. I'm just really unlucky. And somehow God's behind that. And so we sometimes become bitter against God and think he messed up. It takes us a while to get around to the real truth, which is your life is the way it is mostly because you messed it up. And, And you messed it up because you had some ideas that really weren't that good of an idea. And nobody really let you know. People encouraged you to keep doing dumb things. And the truth is, the applause of the world will almost always lead you to doing dumb things. And so Paul said, don't fool yourself into thinking just because everybody thinks you're great that you're really great. Just because you feel like you're really growing doesn't mean you're really growing. Doesn't mean you're getting a whole lot smarter. Don't you have a sense every once in a while that, you know, it seemed like I used to be a lot smarter than I am right now. It's kind of There's a lot of truth to that. But here, as as Paul's talking to them, he says, listen, if it seems like you get it, back up a little bit. You'd be better off to make yourself foolish so that you can get God's wisdom. Don't settle for your wisdom, which is foolishness compared to God's wisdom, in other words. So how does that work? Well, you know, whenever you go to learn something, you have to start with square one. At least you should. As a teacher, there's nothing more frustrating than when you're teaching people who think they already know what you're going to teach them. I remember years ago when I used to teach karate. If I got someone who didn't even know what karate meant or what it was, that was the ideal karate student. But the worst karate students were the ones that had had a few lessons somewhere else or, you know, they've seen all of Bruce Lee's movies or what. And so, you know, they come in going, okay, I just need you to polish up my technique a little bit. You know, I I know how to throw karate chops and kicks, but I want to learn how to rip the heart out of a bull or something. And you're like, oh, man, wait, that's like lesson 10. You need to back up a little bit. But a lot of times, you know, students can be really obnoxious when they just want to tell you what they know. And we've all been in classes where there was a student who was constantly raising their hand, not to ask a question, but to let everyone else know all the things that they knew. Sometimes when I was on, you know, and once in a while I'll still do pastor's perspective where I answer Bible questions on the radio. The kind of call I can't stand is a person who doesn't really have a question but they want to call up and show how smart they are. And so they go on and on with all the, and there are times when I'll have to interrupt them and just say, wait a minute, hang on here. Is there a question in here somewhere? Is there, now, this is pastor's perspective. It's not obnoxious blowhard perspective. So can you just, like, and so often we are that kind of a student when it comes to God. We're like, God, we know a bunch of stuff. 
Because, see, the way our minds work and the way we think education works is, okay, I get a few basic building blocks, and once those are solid, I add on to them. I continue to compound all of what I know, and eventually, look at me. Look how high I am. Look what I know. Look what I've achieved. The problem is, it's usually a house of cards because we are so prone to self-deception that even when we listen to a good teacher, we learn the wrong things. Even people who, like them, were, were looking at, oh, look at Paul, look at Apollos, look at Cephas. You know, one of the reasons why you can't be loyal to a teacher, why you can't just follow the leader, is because inevitably, if we copy another person, we will copy the worst things about them. We become a really bad caricature of who they are because what stands out about them is more their faults than what it is that God has actually done and why he has used them. And so here's what happens in our lives. We go, okay, I've learned a lot. I've been a Christian. I accepted the Lord in 1971. Even before that, I studied the Bible, went to church all my life. So now I've accumulated this pile of information. And by now, boy, I'm pretty wise. I've learned a lot. And so I don't want to hear the basics anymore. I want to hear something really deep and sophisticated. Because I've got the basics down. And yet the truth is, and every good teacher knows this, you have to wipe the slate clean and start from square one. And that's what Paul is saying to them. You know what? For just a minute here, forget everything you know. Because some of what you know just isn't so. You've learned things over the years and built upon that information. And truth is, some of it was wrong. Some of what you've picked up and learned and acquired and accumulated, it wasn't right. And so your house is tottering, your life isn't working, you're, you're frustrated with how things are working out for you, and you can't figure out how somebody as smart as you could be doing the dumb things that you do. And Paul would say, how about becoming foolish for a minute here? How about coming to God like a child, not like an expert? Because that's the only way we can come to God is with what we don't know. If I come to God in my wisdom and ask him to go ahead and polish it up a little bit, the problem is that reinforces things that I've learned that are wrong. And I start to build on that. And we all have a tendency to hear what we want to hear. And we all have a tendency to remember things the way we want to remember them. And as a result, we build this tottering, falling over piece of mess. And we're like, what? I'm fine. I think I'm doing okay. And then eventually when it crumbles, we somehow think God let us down. Or what happened? I know it wasn't this or this or this or this because I have those things together. See, God's wisdom is so different than ours that we have to continue to start over. Now, that's frustrating, frankly, because we look at our spiritual life and our spiritual growth the way we look at the way we raise our kids. You raise your kids by teaching them the basics, and you start out just, it's a big victory when finally those M&Ms pay off and they're able to use the toilet by themselves, and, and you're thinking, oh, man, I thought this day would never happen. And you're teaching them other things, and you coach them in the fact that 
the way we act at home isn't the way we act in public and those sort of, and we're like, hey, they're getting pretty good. We send them off to school and let somebody else teach them for a while. And eventually the goal is, how can my kids get along without me? How can I know that when I don't see them anymore or they're so disgusted with me that they don't really want to see me or someday when the Lord takes me home and, and there they are, are they going to be okay without me? Are they going to be okay when I'm not there to do it for them? We take that mentality and we transfer it over to our walk with the, with the Lord. And instead of understanding that we need to stay as his children, instead we want to be God's adults. We go, God, give me enough principles. Teach me enough of your word. If I learn the verses and I learn the rules and I get the experience enough and I become a, a big boy or a big girl in you, then I can get by without you, God. You can give me all the stuff. Teach me what you need to teach me, and then I'll be fine without you. And that's where we stumble, and that's when we become self-deceived, when we think somehow that we can grow to the point where we don't need God so much. Needing Him is something that's an admission of our own foolishness, of our own helplessness. And the truth is, God doesn't ever, ever want us to grow past our absolute dependence on Him. He wants us to be His children for all of eternity. He doesn't want us to like be children for a while and then we get to where we don't need Him so much. That's what religion does. That's what legalism does. It says, okay, God, teach me the rules and then all I need is the rule book and then I'll know what to do. But we are designed to be utterly dependent on God. As a result, when you start thinking that you're smart, knock it off. Give it up. The truth is, the most important lesson for you and for me to learn is how stupid we are. And as I look back, and, and boy, in my walk with the Lord, I've been hurt, I've been burned, I've had success, I've had failure. I've seen a lot. And I'd like to think that I've become more wise as a result, but I'm still so capable of being fooled, and I'm still so capable of doing dumb things and making poor decisions, and almost always I have a good verse to support it, and I have a, a good anecdote that backs me up, and it's like, what happened? Now, all of a sudden, I thought I was smart, and I'm getting stupid again. Exactly. That's the lesson that we need to learn. And with everything that I've experienced with the Lord, with everything I've learned from Him, the most important lesson that I've come away with is I am an idiot. I am really stupid. And so Paul says, start there and stay there. If people tell you you're smart and wise, don't believe them. When you start feeling like you've got it down... You're being fooled. Become foolish so that his wisdom can be there. How does that work? Why, as he says, his wisdom's different than ours. God has such a weird way of doing things, and usually it runs contrary to what most people think we ought to do. So you'd think, get all the smart people and ask them what you ought to do, and then you do it, and you just made a smart decision. But the truth is, I don't care how smart they are. They can't think like God. And what you need to do is to go to the Lord and hear what he is telling you to do, not what all those smart people are telling you to do. 
The smartest people will tell you when you ask them what to do, they'll tell you, I don't know. I'm always having people come and ask me what to do. I can save you the trouble. I don't know. I don't know what you should do. I can't fix your life. I can't solve your problems for you. I'll sit there and bounce foolishness back and forth with you and call it counseling. But in reality, if I ever tell you something smart, it's going to be, you need to hear from God. You don't need a relationship with me. You need a relationship with him. Oh, sometimes it helps to have somebody sit there and muddle through the waters with you, play in the sandbox with you. And really, that's the best thing our counseling can do. But ultimately, we are designed to be dependent on God for everything, for every decision, for every insight. All that we have is Him. And so, the smartest thing is to say, okay, forget everything that you know. God, what are you saying to me? It's one of the reasons why I don't like to, and sometimes people get frustrated because they'll go, you know, well, when you do a Bible study, how about bringing in all the scriptures, all the cross-references and everything that the Bible says and a lot of quotes from church fathers and theologians and tell us what all the commentators say and give us this big hodgepodge of everything, you know, because we want to be educated. And I understand that. I'm not knocking that necessarily, but I'll tell you something. It's really important to just look at the word that God is giving us and see what he's saying here instead of right away going, well, he says this, but it can't mean that because that seems to conflict with what theologians say this other verse means, and I have this theological structure that dictates this, and I, how about just looking at what he says and going, what if God actually means what he says? I mean, okay, yes, you need to look at the whole counsel of God. Yes, you need to learn God's word. But so often we read his word with such a prejudice. We read his word with all these preconceived notions that it robs us of the freshness of God speaking to us. Is it possible that there are things that you believe that are wrong? Is it possible that there are things that you've always been taught that aren't right? that are a little bit askew, that's threatening because I want to get smarter than I used to be. I want to build my knowledge of life and God and all those sorts of things. I want to do it myself. I want to be a big boy. But it's so important. If we really want to have God's wisdom, it's so important to start over constantly, to start fresh. It's one of the reasons why I don't like reading a Bible that's all marked up. Now, some people like writing in their Bibles, and, and I'll write in my Bible sometimes, but when I'm reading my Bible, I want a clean version of it, because I don't want to see, oh, here's what I heard so-and-so say back in 1980 about that, or here's the verse I underlined because it blessed me in the 90s, or here's what I thought Spurgeon said, and that was really cool, and I wrote it. In, in fact, I don't even like a Bible with red letters in it if I have a preference, because I just want to take it as being all breathed by God. It's His Word, and when I approach it, I want to approach it freshly. I don't want to approach it with a bunch of backlog of information. Now, that's just me. If you like going and 
and eating a meal that you've already eaten, go ahead, it's fine. <laughs> you know, and there's, there's a place for looking back and listening to old things and hearing, remembering lessons that God taught you in the past. There's a place even for journaling and remembering what God told you, but not if it takes the place of hearing fresh things from God. Because again, his wisdom is so different than ours. His way of doing things. I, you know, in a million years, I wouldn't think of when someone's blind, hey, my eyes don't work. I wouldn't think, hey, how about spitting in the dirt, making some mud and smearing it in the guy's eyes? That'll work. Oh, well, that's, that's crazy. No, that's God. Crazy would be if I think because he did it that way once, he's going to keep doing it that way, and I'm walking around smearing mud in, in blind people's eyes. That's what crazy is. Smart is to realize, well, God can heal a guy that way. He can heal him a bunch of other ways too. I want to know how he's going to do it this time. And so, again, don't fool yourself into thinking that you've arrived. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're finally learning some things. It's starting at square one that's the most important lesson to learn. And if from my experience I learned that I'm stupid and God's smart, I finally learned something. And that's the lesson that he wants me to learn. God, I need you constantly. Tomorrow will be a mess if I don't have you. I don't want tomorrow to be, well, this is what I always do on Monday. That's stupid. That's self-deception. But then he goes on and says, after talking about this, he says, therefore, let no one boast in men. That makes sense. If what we have in common is that we're all idiots, then it makes sense not to go, my idiot's smarter than your idiot. You know, my pastor, you know, yeah, he's foolish like all of us, but he's less foolish, so I listen to him. Don't boast in men, but, he says, all things are yours. All things? Yeah. Paul's yours. Apollos is yours. Cephas is yours. The world, life, death, things present, things to come, all are yours. And you're Christ and Christ is God's. Why does he plop this in here? Other than the fact that it just seems to be crazy, what does it have to do with what he's talking about? Well, think about it this way. Here it is. What do we try to do with wisdom? Every time we're trying to figure something out or make a decision or get some guidance, what are we looking for usually? We're generally wanting wisdom because we think wisdom will either help us get more stuff get the things that we don't have that we want, or it'll help us not lose the things that we have, that we've achieved, or it'll help us to be something that we aren't. And that's really what we think of wisdom. So the most interesting things to us are how to. We look in the Bible, ooh, if the Bible tells me how to get what I want, that would be the greatest. If the Bible tells me how to be someone who's esteemed, that would be awesome. But see, the truth is, all of that desire for human wisdom is all based on one thing, and it has one thing in common, and that is our insecurity. It's our insecurity. Because we feel like something's missing, because we feel like we're not what we want to be, or we don't have what we want to have, somehow we think, if we could just get that, if we could just get the answers and figure it out, then 
I'll be safe and secure. I'll be okay. But what Paul says is, don't you get it? See, you belong to Christ. Christ is, is God. And he says, everything he has is yours. You are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that you want, you've already inherited it. Now, they may not have handed it to you yet, but it's yours. Now, how different would our life perspective be if everything we desire, we realized it's already ours? I don't lust over my car. I might lust over your car because I don't have it. But I don't lust after my car. I lusted after it until I got it. Once it was mine, I quit lusting for it. Now it's just an old car. You know, now it's just an eight-year-old piece of metal you know, that's going to burn. I don't care. Somebody steals it, great, insurance. But you know, I, don't, I don't lust after my house. I like my house. I lusted after it when I saw it. As soon as I got it, I quit wanting it. Now it's like it's just a place to, to put my stuff. It's just a place to stay. But what I lust after are the things I don't have because somehow I think if I had your car, my life would be better than it is right now. Driving in your car, that'd be awesome. Okay, not some of your cars. (laughs) (sighs) Having your house, wow, would that be great. That would just, somehow I just think I'd sleep better at night being in your house. (laughs) Mine, that's mine. Now, everything that you want like that, house, car, esteem, relationships, possessions, whatever it is. Paul says, you know, actually, you're lusting after something that's already yours. This, as the old hymn says, this is my father's world. He's my dad. I inherit it. I can have anything he wants to give me. Ultimately, I'll have everything I I desire. It's my inheritance. And, you know, I can't, I don't know what it's like to have an inheritance. I, you know, been blessed with, you know, broke parents. But, you know, (laughs) there are people who, boy, they stand to inherit a fortune. And how that changes your perspective. I had a friend who, and he wasn't really wealthy, just richer than I was, but he knew he had an inheritance. Both of his parents were, you know, had some cool stuff. And, and so he didn't worry too much about bills and things like that because he realized he's just a couple of unfortunate deaths away from having it made. <laughs> and sorry, bad way to put it, but <laughs> I saw a TV commercial for some show where the girl was telling her parents, why can't you be like other parents and die while I'm young? But, <laughs> but um, <laughs> if you know that you're going to inherit stuff, you don't stress over trying to get it because it's yours already. You just haven't taken possession of it yet. Imagine what it's like to be one of these princes there in England. You inherit the right to make a living doing nothing. You pose for pictures and you're have millions of dollars because of it. And someday, if you're Prince William, someday you're going to be the king of England. Now, there's something to be proud of. But, I, you know, I'm sure it's a big deal to him. Look, I'm going to be king. 
And I remember when Prince William was really young, and what made me think of this is he turned 25 this last week, and so he got a chunk of money as a result of turning 25. But I remember when he was like five years old, and they said that one of his teachers was disciplining him, and he said, when I am king, I'll have your head. (laughs) That's why they don't give an inheritance to a five-year-old. But they say, someday this is all going to be yours, That should take some pressure off of you. Now, everything that you need and everything that you want, God's going to give it to you. You have an inheritance, everything. And that's what Paul's saying. It's all yours. But it's an inheritance. You may not have it yet. You may not be ready for it at this point. And we become so frustrated because, oh, I want it now. It's yours. Will you trust God? Will you believe him that ultimately it's all yours? You can look around outside at everything that there is, and God goes, it's all yours. You are my child. And this, I I, I created it for you. I designed it for you to enjoy and for you to possess. And I gave it to your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, and, and they squandered it. And I came in order to purchase it back. I paid the price so that your inheritance can be secured, and it is secure. And you're going to get everything you could ever dream of or hope for. What would that do to our lives if we really believed that, if we really felt that way? Man, the pressure's off. It's, it's all ours. You want something? It's yours. You don't need it right now, so just leave it where it is. But you'll get it someday and you'll have it. So often, we struggle within our flesh because I want it now. Maybe there's something in your life, a battle that you've been fighting for a long time. Maybe it's a sin that you've been really wanting to have the victory over, and you just can't. It's like, oh, I want this so bad because if I could conquer this, man, I'll have it made. And you can't figure out why you haven't had the victory. Maybe you're having a hard time sleeping or you have a physical ailment or a hurt that just doesn't go away or there's something in your life that isn't the way you want it to be and you're trying to figure it out. You're thinking that if you get enough wisdom, it'll make sense. And God's going, you know what? How about just report for kindergarten? How about just getting out there in the sandbox with the other kids? Don't worry. I'm going to give it to you. I know how badly you want it, but for some reason, I'm not giving it to you right at this point. And it's probably because if I gave you your whole inheritance now, you'd go squander it like the prodigal son. So I want you to depend on me so I will be the guardian over our stuff, and I'll dole it out to you at the perfect time in the perfect way. But trust me, it is all yours. There's nothing that you want. There's nothing you need. There's nothing that you want to see happen that I haven't already paid for. It's in the bank. It's done. But I need you to stay close to me. So why don't you just go ahead and be the dumb little kid that you are, and trust me, you're going to inherit all of it. If you dream of it, it's yours. You know... There are people in the church today that really emphasize positive thinking and positive confession. And, and typically, we scorn them and we go, oh, what a dumb 
What a dumb idea. And we listen to preachers who are saying, God loves you, and he's rich, and he wants you to be rich, and, all. and we're like, yeah, yeah, right. And, and, we, and we laugh at them. And, you know, they're half right. Where they're confused is that having a bunch of stuff isn't really the big deal. But they're right. Our father is rich, and they're right. We are his heirs, and we have an inheritance. They just are confused that he doesn't just dump it all on us right now and let Prince William cut somebody's head off when he's five years old. He goes, hey, I'm going to give it to you as you show that you can handle it. I'm going to give it to you when the time is right, but I'm telling you, you're rich beyond your wildest dreams. They're right about that. It's true. And we should rest in that. It should make us secure to know, okay, I don't have everything that I want right now, but it's mine. I've got it. It's down. All those different pastors that I fight over which one of them is, you know, right and which one of them is better, they all work for me. They're all a part of the church. They're all a part of my father's world. And so we're all on the same side. We're all heading in the same direction. We don't need to fight. We are sharing the inheritance, and there's an infinite abundance of everything that we want. It's not a zero-sum game where if you get it, I don't. In my Father's world, we can all have everything that we want because he'll give it to us. He's promised that. And that should make us feel really secure Right now, you know, I have a car, but it's parked down the street and across the street over at the shopping center. I'm glad I have the car because that's how I plan on getting home today after church, after third service. But I don't sit and think, I wonder if my car is still there. It's there. Nobody's going to steal it. It's sitting there. It's probably getting a few leaves falling on it and whatever, but I'll go over there and it's fine. I don't need it to be right here. Oh, I need to get a ride home, so where's my car? I know where my car is. And see, that's the kind of security that God wants us to have in terms of everything. We go, oh, God, I'm worried about this. He goes, don't worry about it. It's taken care of. I'm all over it. I'm on top of it. I've got it. But God, it doesn't make sense to me. He goes, you're stupid. Makes sense, <laughs> makes sense to me. You're okay. Trust me. That's the message of God. You know, and there may be a part of that that you don't like. And there may be people here today who are offended that I'm calling you stupid. Too bad. <laughs> Why is it such a threat to be stupid if you have a God who's thinking for you, who's a jump ahead? who will give you his mind at the right time. He can lead and guide you with or without your wisdom. He does it better without. So in the same way that Paul learned when Paul was starting to feel weak, Paul was a guy who was strong his whole life. But eventually life started catching up to him, injuries that were plaguing him, and he was crying out to God and asking God for strength. And God said, Paul, guess what? When you are weak, that's when my strength is perfected. So you being weak isn't a threat. If God's strong and he's yours, and you're his, and he's for you, he goes, just rest in my weakness. And that's God's message to us today. Yes, I don't like to be called dumb, but I am dumb and somebody needs to tell me. 
It's okay, God's smart. He knows everything. And he's not depending on us as his divine brain trust to work things out. You ever think about how our prayers sound to God? We're like, okay, God, here's the deal. There have been a few developments since I talked to you last time, (laughs) and I better just bring you up to snuff. Uh, Remember what I told you before, you know, that's still the case. I'm still right. And God, remember the plan I designed? Still going to work. A few little tweaks, a few little... But God, you and I, we're just a couple miracles away from really being on top of things. God goes, go back to your kindergarten class. <laughs> I got it. I'm on top of it, but don't worry, it's all yours. We should be the most secure, stupid people ever. Because it's like, it's great. The bad news is you're dumb. The good news is nobody's asking you anything. He's got it all, and he's going to give it to you. Oh, how thankful I am, because I have tried to be secure in my own wisdom. I've tried to think hard enough that I could figure things out. I'm better than most, frankly. I'm sure all of you are, too. We all think that. But when I get to the point where, like Curly and the Three Stooges, where Curly says, I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. (laughs) And it's like, I'm up against a wall. What's going on here? God goes, it's okay. I got it covered. Got you taken care of. And actually, the truth is, when you start getting confused, I've got you right where I want you. Because now you're going to report for class. And we're going to do the alphabet together. And we're going to go through the basics once again. And you're going to realize, I'm there for you. All you need is me. And finally, as his wisdom supersedes over everything that we have, and we go, I have a really smart thought. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And I go, man, I never realized how smart that song was. I never realized how deep that thought is. And to realize that ultimately he loves me. He's got me covered. I can relax. I can be secure. I don't have to try really hard. He's not depending on me. I'm depending on him for every breath, for every move. And when it comes down to him and that's all that's left, like Corey Ten Boom said, you'll never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. That's a lesson that we all need to learn. Anything else? You're fooling yourself. All of your great inventions that you're spending all your time on, they're going to amount to nothing. And that's okay. Because when you're flat broke and desperate and you look up and God goes, you're right where I want you. Let's start over. God's mercies are new every morning. It's great that we have the opportunity to do kindergarten every day. Let's stay there and be his children and play in his playground and let him be God. And everything that you see, it's yours because it's his. As long as you are his, as long as Paul says you're Christ's, if you've given your life to him, He's got you covered. Let's pray.
God, we're sorry that we've been in school so long and we're learning all the wrong stuff. Help us to relearn that we need you always. And thanks for the promise of the inheritance. It really does make it easier. We realize that everything we see is ours. What a great promise. But even greater, the idea that we are yours, that we belong to you, that you love us. And God, I thank you for that knowledge that supersedes everything else we think we know. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.